Welcome to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, where your co-hosts, Dale Yuzuki, Cindy Lawley, and Sarantis Klamidis from Olink Proteomics, talk about the intersection of proteomics with genomics for drug target discovery, the application of proteomics to reveal disease biomarkers, and current trends in using proteomics to unlock biological mechanisms. Here we have your hosts, Dale, Cindy, and Sarantis. Welcome to another episode of Proteomics in Proximity. I'm your host, Dale Yuzuki, with my co-host Cindy and Sarantis. And this morning, hey there. Hey there. And Sarantis, what are we going to be talking about today? Uh, today it's a great paper. Actually, there's a great paper where it describes ways of using biomarkers, protein biomarkers in early discovery of inflammatory bowel disease, and a great example of a crosstalk between gut microbioma and immunohomeostasis. And uh, it's really great because it combines a, a multiomics approach and they have really investigated genetics and uh, proteomics and metabolomics. And uh, also uh, they have done sequencing of uh, microbiota in order to identify this crosstalk. Uh, Cindy, what do, you, do, what do we know about the DUOX2? What, uh, what is the importance of this, of this protein, actually? Yeah, so the name, DUOX, right? Double oxygen. So it's, a, it's a, a, a marker within the genome. And in fact, this paper highlights some, some uh, variants in DUOX2, uh, a gene that, that codes for something that will um, produce hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, uh, in the epithelial lining. So actually in that, what is it, the apical layer, mm-hmm. Gail, that, that layer that's right next to where essentially our, our, the results of our food go by, right? And so that production has an effect on the microbiome. So this idea that we might have a proteomic biomarker that is indicating something about the, the my host microbiome interaction, right? That gut bacteria that we all are so curious about and has been the topic of so many interesting uh, publications that we might have a protein biomarker that's indicating something about the dysbiosis or the the shift in that microbiome that pre- precedes inflammatory bowel disease is super exciting. And, so that that's what I I see here. And, that, and inf- that I'm inflammatory bowel disease, right? Is devastating. I mean, I personally know three individuals are affected. You may know others, right? I mean, their digestion, their immune system. And it's really, really difficult because you talk about the interplay between the person, their gut microbiota, which is right off. It, it is different than regular people. And it's a complex organ, right? The gut microbiome is, a, is essentially, I mean, a lot of people talk about it as an organ. And, uh, and these, this group, you know, including, including a group out of Institute for Systems Biology, does a fair amount of work on the gut microbiome, particularly in their, their, health, their wellness cohort. Yeah. yeah. So, Cindy, Very why don't you tell us more about this wellness cohort? I understand it, this is Aravel again. That's right. So Aravale, yeah, Aravale was a, a company that's that spun out of the Institute for Systems Biology. It was based in Seattle, uh, and uh, and the the team focused on collecting data longitudinally uh, for 
a, a bunch of people that just opted in for reconsenting. So we, we opted in for for updating their consenting and and recontact. And the great thing about that is they're coming in regularly. They're well well when they start. And we'll be talking about I think some other papers that are coming out of this um, exciting group, but but it, it offers an opportunity to look retrospectively at samples where individuals who were healthy can uh, actually will develop some some diseases, right? As we age, we tend to to do that, unfortunately. And so uh, so it's a it's a powerful demonstration of a wellness cohort and having longitudinal sampling, uh, I think. And uh, and we'll like I said, we'll double click on that in this podcast. Uh, I think quite so a bit. So this paper talks about over twenty eight hundred individuals from this cohort, but it was larger. Was it almost five thousand, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And of course, over time, you're going to have people dropping out uh, inevitably. And so this is a really great sample number. And the longitudinal data that they have collected for this this group of individuals is stunning. So they already had their whole genome sequence, right? And then mm. what did they also sample their their microbiome, like from feces? Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then, you know, they don't need to necessarily collect data on all the samples in all the modalities. What they've done is they've seen uh, interesting things evolve in this cohort and uh, and then uh, do specific uh, uh, work within uh, a subset. And that's exactly what happened here, right? So a subset of the individuals from this, uh, this 2,800 uh, a subset of the Aravel cohort uh, had these Duox two variants, and uh, and those Duox two variants had some had some. Um, so I would say this sort of brings me back to this idea that if we had what what was the total number, Dale? You you pulled it up for me right before the podcast. Three hundred and. Yeah, some odd individuals. It was like was 357 uh, individuals. 57. So yep, I think yep. it was with rare variants. Yeah, 12.4 percent. So yep. Yeah, if we were going to do a GWAS on 357 individuals, uh, compare that to control samples. That's not a very powerful GWAS by by our standards mm -hmm. of the in the genetic space. And so making the association between these variants. And uh, an inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease or, you know, this IBD phenotype might have been very challenging, right? And so this is a novel discovery, this Duox2 association with IBD. And it was made through an association that include uh, a, a phenotypic data that is closer to the disease, which includes proteomics, right? So so that's an, an, and that as well as microbiome, right? So the the ability to have this multiomics, as Sarantis highlighted, and amplify the power to detect the relationship between genetics and disease is is something I think is exciting. So we end up with whole genome data, right? And we also have then the, all the clinical laboratory measurements. You have metabolites, where they, apparently they measured some ni over 950 uh, metabolites from these patients or these volunteers, healthy individuals. It looks like yep. what they use three O-Link Target 96 panels for a total of 266 proteins. And then the microbiome, which is a really important part, they're doing 16S ribosomal RNA sequencing, which gives you this idea of, right, what does the constellation of bacterial species look like, right, just from sampling RSRNA. But then they do a FIWAS. And 
maybe we can walk through a little bit, right? What What is a FIWAS again? I don't know, Sarantis, you want to talk about it, or Cindy? I guess I mean, I'm not so familiar with the FIWAS, actually, uh, to be to be honest, yeah, I mean, it's uh, one of a few times I have seen it, have come across that, but I, I check a little bit in the in the literature. It has to do with phenotypic associations and how these are correlating with uh, with the changes that happens in the in the in the genome, for example, right? And that's so, uh, how and I phenotype, see it. This is like the correlation, right? And the phenotype they're the phenotype looking for be, is IBD, right? Yeah. So they have right, IBD, individuals yes, with course, IBD course, from these twenty eight hundred yeah. people, yeah. And they're saying what's associating. Right out of all this multi-omic data, okay, you just say, well, Dale, there's how many different kinds of microbes in the stool? We're looking at 266 proteins and 950 metabolites and all these other clinical measurements, but then they zero in on this one particular enzyme, or is it an enzyme? Yeah, right. This dual oxidase two two. Yeah, it's an enzyme. Enzyme, yeah. Yeah. And what is it doing? Produce. Uh, what is the function of duox? It produces hydrogen peroxide. Oh, yeah, that's actually, right. You peroxide, mentioned that. Actually, yeah, you mentioned that, Cindy. It kills bacteria at the end. It's, it's for killing yeah, the yeah. bacteria at the end, right? And that is adjusting <laughs> the microbiome. It, it, it exactly. appears, right? I, I like to yeah. use the language that we're, ident- we're un- unveiling here in this paper. These authors are unveiling a a little bit about the mechanism, right? Super exciting, but there could also be complexity that that they're yet to uncover. Which so as far as that, we're here, right? Right. As far as that particular function, right? We have this idea of hydrogen peroxide, and we normally use hydrogen peroxide, right, to clean up as an antibacterial, right? It oxidizes exactly. things exactly. And no, and so, what is it then? Duox Duox two is normally doing what in the body? I mean, duox2 in the context of these individuals is keeping a certain type of gram-negative bacteria away. Yeah, and we're talking about homeostasis. At the end, whatever happens in, happens in biology is, is, is homeostasis, right? It's like the, the equilibrium. And when you have the shifting of equilibrium, then you have all of these pathologies. That's at the end. According to Greek philosophy also, Aristotle is talking about the, the equilibrium, right? And keeping the equilibrium. At the end, that's that's pretty much what we have in our body. Yeah, and, uh, we need to have this balance. Looking, looking the rare... Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. And looking a little bit the rare, the rare mutations, they have mutations of frame shifts, uh, let's say in a mid-sense, you know, we have different type of rare mutations in the uh, Duox2 that leads to loss of function. Uh, they have heterogeneous individuals with uh, loss of function allele. And, uh, of course, this affects the level of DOX2. And as a consequence, they have seen that this increase of IL-17C. So just to repeat what Saranta said in terms of homeostasis, right? In the normal healthy gut with a normal functioning dual oxidase 2 sort of enzyme, right? At the surface of the gut lining, You've got gram-negative bacteria held at bay, right, because of the hydrogen yeah. peroxide. Apparently, there's some kind of segmented filamentous bacteria that's also a healthy bacteria that's associated, right, in the in the in that side of the gut that's facing, right, the in- external environment. But we have these individuals with these Duox2 mutations where Duox2 is not doing its job correctly, right? This FIWAS, right, this genetic association. And then we have yeah. the gram-negative bacteria disrupting, right? It's in, in, no more segmented filamentous bacteria, gram-negative bacteria invade, and then we have this IL-17C being activated. 
Yeah. And so here now we're talking about no more homeostasis, right? In terms of it's Dis- dysbiosis. 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 A word of the day. These IBDs. Yeah. Dysbiosis, right? The Greek word of the day. The Greek word of the day. There you go. There you go. I love and it. And then we have the same cells that are being affected, right, by these gram negative yeah. bacteria producing yeah. IL-17C in the system in the body that can be picked up and in mouse in mice right this this um duox2 deficiency and this il17 elevation are associated with these this expansion of proteobacteria uh pathobionts like pathogenic uh bacteria so i thought yeah now, that was pretty fascinating right where they're able to take the same system and draw these conclusions even down to what invertebrates and i'm like wait that's we're right. talking about duox yeah. 2 function in invertebrates and i'm like oh primordial they say right yeah so there you've got your primordial duox producing hydrogen peroxide right you've got in mice this duox 2 deficiency increased il17c levels in the intestine and proteobacteria you know elevation uh, and then you've got in IBD patients this evidence, right? I love this, you know, s- this approach to to see multiple lines of evidence in different systems, especially in such a historic pathway, right? Right. Historic meaning right. going back to invertebrates in evolution, in evolution. exactly. See, to see elegance. To see elegance. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go in worms. And here, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. even this whole idea of right, we've got this mechanism that they're able to look at via what they use knockout mice, right? And so yeah. these mice were deficient in duox too. They can go ahead and do a lot of experimentation on those tissues. And then there is something called a colonoid. And I'm like, colonoid? Yeah. What's a colonoid? Serantis, you're yeah. what is a colonoid? It's a good I, again I'm not I'm taking the difficult questions now. But it's <laughs> fine. I think I try, I try I try to be creative also in the way that I'm answering. Yeah, I, you know, organoids a lot of buzzwords um, different things they call organoids. Uh, you know, I, I'm guessing uh, that uh, what they are mean here is uh, just uh, a culture. They take a tissue and they culture this tissue like prim- primary cell culture in a way, but keeping the integrity of the tissue and they can do measurements of the proteome based on this tissue. I'm, I'm guessing this is pretty much what they're doing there. I know? see. And this is what colonoids. But uh, yeah, Min- mini uh, mini colons from primary tissue, mini tissue yeah. in vitro or something, or three D or three D tissue culture or something, right? Yeah, you can hear also. Say, yeah, but then mm. you know, right to take then that finding in mice and then being able to translate it to humans right to say yeah, that no, they believe uh, that these sort of deficient individuals and and i thought one of the interesting figures was just how rare these variants were i mean but yeah. yet it in was too, yeah, yeah in certain populations it was like the odds ratio was really high right was it uh, ashkenazi jews uh, as a population that's right. yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah that's true and then there was that's a, a, that's a, another cohort uh, that you know, it seemed like these o- these odds ratio estimates were were pretty high because they were enriched, right? These populations have yeah. a lot of these yeah. duox two mutations in the population. I just thought that was really interesting, I where you can have then maybe a genetic test, right, where somebody's susceptible. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. Yeah. I will say though, the IL seventeen C levels 
were were high in other subjects that didn't have that Duox2 variant enrichment, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't have that Duox2. So you have the option, a possibility, mm. right, that's suggested here that you could do a genetic test to see about those rare variants. But <clears throat> in fact, the ILC17, IL17C levels had um, where they were elevated, there was a common response, sort of a cascade uh, that suggested this. I don't. I don't know if they use the word inflammatory, but in my mind, that's what I picture. And I think this is this is this is where I think the excitement around the proteomics is, but also with the Duox two. Just going back to the Duox two variant, mm. this is kind of how I think about proteomics in the context of genomics. Right? If you have a Duox two uh, a rare variant that suggests a, an increased IL seventeen C level. Dale, we'll just pick you, and uh, yeah. and I don't. You see how I end up in the good in the good category, but um, and then you have an exposure to a protein level over your lifetime, perhaps that I don't. Like that's that that exposure internally in our in our body is is a way that I sometimes think about the the relevance of how we make these connections between genetics and protein levels. Uh, but anyway, that that's just a way of thinking about it that I, I, I think... No, that's not, that was great. And then I, w- I will add also the macrobiome factor here because they have done a really crazy experiment and they really like it. In mice, they use antibiotics to eliminate actually the negative, the gram-negative, and they see that IL-17 C levels, they drop down again, yeah. you know? Oh, that you means go. there's so really like cross-talk with microbiome yeah. and the levels of Good yeah. word. So you, yeah. And yeah. so the one of the applications of this paper is, could fecal my, uh, microbiota transplantation, F- yeah. FMT, or antibiotic treatment for people, exactly. right, with this dysbiosis, right, where the gram-negative yeah. bacteria yeah. are not are, are where they shouldn't be, I mean, is pretty, oh, how do I say, remarkable, right, to think you know, yeah. this is a Absolutely. potential sort of uh, mechanism by which, again, knowing the mechanism suggests therape- therapeutics. And, and even though the complexity of Duox2 and, the, and then the IL-17C and then, you know, this a whole bacterial story and then and then and then the immune system right there's what t helper right. cells CR, oh go ahead yeah ccr6 the chemo attractant for lymphocyte yeah, and dendritic the cells system. right there's fgf23 i don't know there's just a so a cascading interesting this yep. yeah this mucosal immunity intestinal mucosal immunity has a protein signature uh that i think can be shifted and has that potential to to provide value well well we should probably highlight the crohn's and colitis foundation actually in this discussion right so crohn's and colitis foundation of course has developed a a a subset of proteins that are are useful in helping identify in a pediatric cohort uh, which of those kids is likely to develop complications from their diagnosis of IBD, right? So again, longitudinal sample, long, a longitudinal cohort that they followed, and they came up with this signature that helps them, you know, have the potential to score and insert a pause between taking out a kid's bowel, which seems like a pretty, a pretty good use of of a proteomic signature. So yeah, that's a that's a important um, story in our. We've got several webinars from the team there. Yep. The. Uh... And one of the interesting take-homes, you know, getting back to the IL-17C story, right? 
uh, high plasma. I'm, I'm reading from right before the discussion. High IL-17C in carriers of Duox2 loss of function variants is not only a potential biomarker for disturbed gut microbe immune homeostasis, but appears to reflect an early stage of IBD pathogenesis. So here yeah. now we're talking about a biomarker yeah. that could be an early predictive, predictive marker, yeah. right, of disease. And you think, yeah. wow, you know, by studying genetics, by studying, right, phenotype, by looking at multiomics, here it is, we come up with a plasma mar biomarker <laughs> that yeah, and mm -hmm. and you're doing it simultaneously, or they're doing it simultaneously, right? So I don't I don't know if you remember the alnylam story, whereby um, you know hereditary amyloidosis has this um, diagnosis that's based upon a gait test, like your walking test in your doctor's office, right? And so so that is sort of a difficult thing to diagnose, but you can have the genetic test very early and, and know you've got a predisposition for it. You just don't know if it will ever penetrate and come into your, ever actually be diagnosed with it. It took time for them to identify a protein biomarker that had promise for that diagnosis. Here, they're doing both at the same time, right? So here you've got a potential for a genetic test, but maybe these people never develop uh, IBD, that's, right? That's, that's a good And point. so you can do the genetic uh, test GD. and then you know who you will have to monitor over time. And again, we're talking, this is all research use only, right? But we're talking about the potential for the future yeah. to, to, you know, what would be the, the clinical utility of something like this? And that's, that, that seems, that I seems mean, like a, a, a comment on that, probably a more to the philosophical point of view. It's like, uh, at the end, Having a genetic test will help our prediction because there are so many rare, let's say, mutations that at the end you will never know the real levels of your protein, right? Because at the end, what yeah. cares is the the proper levels of DUX2, independent of the mutation or not. Uh, mm -hmm. That means probably you will need the protein biomarker, the IL-17C and all the cascade that follows to be more sure and more concrete what we are seeing. That's the way that I see because so many rare mutations, difficult to predict the levels of the protein, you know. I, I think that's really important to have like a, a plasma biomarker to follow at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's not, you know, not everybody's not going to use our 3K, our Explore panel no. to, to test. For, right. We're talking about something that's developed for the clinic uh, that's you know, very specific that would need to go through regulatory approval to get Absolutely. to get into clinical utility. But yeah, very, very exciting. And you think this could be right? Um, well, uh, in the commentary, the researchers saying, you know, patients and physicians and scientists are looking for, you know, how to unlock this microbiome host and then immune system as a, like a holy grail, right, within IBD. Yeah. And I thought yeah. that was yeah. so interesting that, you know, here it is, they're, they're looking at so many different variables, right? When you think about whole genome data and all the genetics yeah. that could be evolved, and then you think about yeah. all the different other measures that they did, and then to settle on, right, <laughs> a model, a gene, a particular plasma-based biomarker, and then looking at how they all interact. <laughs> it's just really, really interesting. And with, you know, down to the micro, the types of uh, microbiota that are being affected. <laughs> it's so it's cool. So cool. 
I mean, it's a big data story, right? Yeah. It's a it's how big data and a cohort that's collected and consented longitudinally. I know I've already said yeah. this, but can drive mechanistic discovery. Yeah. To help define uh, disease biomarkers, and I think mm -hmm. having a biomarker is great, but having it where you actually kind of have a sense of the yeah. like these multiple lines of evidence, right? Yeah. Mouse model, right? Uh, having having multiple lines of evidence and some mechanistic understanding of it yeah. makes makes it's so much. I'm much more comforted in seeing it, it, it implemented I mean, in the clinic. And I and I would hope it has the potential to move to the clinic a little more quickly when we actually have that mechanistic insight. Sorry, go ahead, Oh, Dan. I was going to say that, you know, after reading a paper like this, because it, it was pretty dense, it's pretty intense, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of, I mean, it was, I don't know, yeah. maybe 12 or 14 pages of, of heavy-duty reading and lots and lots of immunology, which can be difficult to grasp. We had mouse models in terms of dual knockouts. We have, you know, all these multi-omics. And yet, it's almost as if, man, this is like the final word, right? <laughs> Meaning this is yeah. one conclusive, right, particular avenue. And then it makes me think, wow, it was only 250 or so proteins in the plasma. What if they did an Explore 3K on it, right? And then I think, yeah. wow, you know, I don't know. Cindy, maybe you can shed light on this. Does the UK Biobank collect uh, fecal, uh, the microbiome samples from individuals? So not to my knowledge. Yeah. I haven't seen any studies on it, yeah. uh, which I would expect. I, I know they're doing metabolomics mm. on samples in the UK Biobank, but my understanding is it's on plasma. Don't quote me on yeah. that, but I just haven't seen any data come out on the microbiome right. on those patients. Because that data set, right, that 16S ribosomal data uh, yeah. is super important because that's one third, right, of the whole story here in terms of right how that uh, microbiome is interacting uh, with the host um any final comments on this i mean this is such a cool paper right even though it was published in 2021 you know this uh, association with inflammatory bowel disease and its practical application and a wonderful multiomic story i mean it it'll is. be really interesting to follow yeah, it is. It's a great story. And so I, I'm thinking in the show notes, we can maybe even put some of these proteins in our Insight app mm -hmm. and provide a link to the to the ability to browse through those. Because I think looking at these pathways might be really interesting. And just to remind folks around our Insight app, we've had a, a podcast yep. about this before. But, but essentially, it's a browser where you can very quickly, what I love about it is that you can actually convert gene names to pro, Uniprot IDs. And Uniprot IDs are... are you know, there's only one Uniprot ID per protein, whereas we've got multiple gene names for them. Uh, so that's really handy. But also being able to just look at the pathways and see which proteins we have in our panels uh, that you can get at that pathway through multiple proteins versus the ones that we don't have in our panels. And that also helps people to identify the ones they want us to put in the panels. And we have a mechanism by which you can request proteins to be included in our future product development uh, efforts. And so that, you know, we've 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 talked about how we're trying to cover the proteome, right? We've got 3000 today, but certainly our R&D team is working hard on 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 covering more. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Cindy. insight.olink.com is how to access this free resource. There's some really great tools inside it, even if people wanted to browse publications by biomarker, right? There I mean, you wouldn't go. that yeah. be very good point? Wouldn't that be interesting yeah. you know, to punch in IL 17C yeah. and see what other yeah. publications come up? 
which by the way is a low abundant protein, right? So if you look in our validation data, also available on our website, you can freely download, you'll see that IL-17C is in the dilution category of one-to-one. So it's neat, right? It's like, uh, you know, you're not adding any dilution factor to it to, to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. manage how much reagent might be needed to count when our, our NGS readout or our QPCR readout is used. And so that one-to-one suggests that it's in that area that we've talked about before where O-Link has really shined a light that makes it much easier to see these low abundant proteins um, than some traditional methods that we, of course, have, have already made lots of great discoveries using mass spectrometry, for example. Yeah. But this low abundant area, you know, I think this is, this is the number of publications we have in our 1,100 plus publication database. Uh, many, many of those are focused on those one-to-one uh, neat proteins that are in that low abundant range. And speaking of show notes, I'll be sure to include uh, Dr. Uh, Hurtado Lorenzo's talk. On, from the Crohn's yes, and yes. Colitis Foundation. Okay, this is where, yes. right there, we're looking at, right, pediatric uh, Crohn's and colitis. And it, it's a remarkable story in terms of, was it maybe 70 or 80 real-time uh, PCR markers that they had developed for from biopsy tissue, but then they went to plasma and they found a much smaller signature that's much more practical, right? Instead of using biopsy tissue and real-time PCR, here it is, they're able to look at circulating biomarkers. Some really exciting work. Yeah, and that that team has has created, of course, it's a nonprofit, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, but they've created a ventures arm mm-hmm. for that uh, entity in order to bring investment in to take things like this to the clinic, right? And they're mm-hmm. funding the majority of Crohn's and Colitis research in the world. In fact, I was at a, mm-hmm. a meeting in South Africa in Cape Town a couple of weeks ago, and there was a poster on, on IBD. And I talked to the authors, and in fact, they were also funded by the Grunts and Colitis Foundation. So that was, you know, it's just a small world in some of these disease areas where the movers and shakers are really making a difference. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us this afternoon or this morning, wherever you may be. And Cindy and Sarantis, great to great see to you. See you. That was great. Until <laughs> right. next time. So long. Thank you for listening to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, brought to you by Olink Proteomics. To contact the hosts or for further information, simply email info at olink.com. 